Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Miller. Our guest today is Mike Jay, and we're going to be talking primarily about his new book, Mescaline, A Global History of the First Psychedelic. I say we're going to talk mostly about his book because maybe there'll be a few other topics we're going to want to talk about. And Mike is coming to us from, tell us where in England? Uh, Yeah, I'm in the far southwest of England, down in Cornwall. And I'm coming to you from a little town in Northern California called Fort Bragg. So, welcome. Nice to see you, Mike. Uh, Pleasure to join you, Richard. You have put together a combination of a scholarly work on mescaline, as well as what you might call a friendly work on mescaline, because it's you, you tell the story uh, in, in a way that's a story. And uh, yes, go ahead. You're going to say something. Oh, I was just going to say, yes, that, that, that was very much my intention. Uh, you know, I'd kind of... Uh, a, a, a drug or a white powder is a kind of a rather dry thing to write a book about. What it's really about is um, all the people in different times and places who've used it in different ways. And, uh, you know, so the narrative in that sense is very peopled. It is very peopled. You've got everybody in there from historical figures, moving up to Timothy Leary, moving to places with the with the uh, Native Americans, um, it's 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 quite a magnum opus. At the same time, I did find myself wondering, why did you pick a stock that's failing? And when I say a stock that's failing, I mean, fifty years ago, I could walk down the street in San Francisco, literally walk down the street and buy mescaline if I wanted to. Fifty years later. I could probably walk down the street and buy LSD in San Francisco, and I'm most likely for sure buy MDMA, but I couldn't buy mescaline. So if you look at it like in the stock, a stock market, mm-hmm. LSD is still ascending, MDMA is ascending, ayahuasca is like a growth stock taking off, you know, with everything as some of the you know, you've described and you're going to tell us about. But mescaline is down in the doldrums. It's like, whoa, my gosh, where is it? So, well, the mescaline stock crashed in uh, science really in the fifties, uh, and it had pretty much disappeared from the counterculture by the seventies. Uh, I guess you would say that uh, you know what's rising now is the use of the uh, mescaline-containing cacti, uh, particularly the. Uh, Wachuma, the San Pedro, uh, is becoming uh, very popular. But the reason I picked it is uh, is really about um, its history. Uh, that it's um, I'm interested in. I mean, we have this idea that psychedelics suddenly just appeared on the scene in the 1950s, which in a, in a literal sense is true. That's when the term psychedelic was coined. But of course. Um, you know, these uh, a lot of these um, substances and plants existed and were used in many, many times and places, in both in Western scientific history and in non-Western indigenous history. So the reason I chose mescaline was because it gives you a chance to get in behind, you know, this kind of concept of psychedelic, which we're all so familiar with, and to have a look at what the life of... Uh, you know, one of the major psychedelics was like before there was an idea of psychedelic, before the term existed. And uh, the other reason that I picked it, which kind of follows from that, is that uh, it kind of has two histories, one of which is a a Western uh, modern scientific history, a lot of which revolves around mescaline, the compounds, the chemical. But of course, there's another much deeper history which is that of the mescaline-containing cacti, the peyote and the San Pedro. And usually in, in um, psychedelics, the kind of indigenous story is kind of in the background or maybe in the first paragraph. Uh, and I really wanted um, 
And what, what I thought was interesting about masculine as a subject is it allows you to tell these two stories in parallel. There's an indigenous story and there's a Western story. And uh, they, they're both very different types of story. Uh, as We were talking about uh, uh, the way in which these stories are peopled. Uh, you know, the Western um, story of masculine is really about um, self-experiments and scientists um, taking um, this compound or the, um, the peyote cactus and narrating their experiences in the first person and describing the colors they see. And, you know, when you look at the indigenous history, you don't find those kind of stories. You don't find individuals putting themselves forward and talking about their story. What you get is a much more deeply rooted cultural story, which is the story of a people. So to me, it was fascinating to be able to tell both those stories, and they demanded very different forms of telling. At the same time, explain to us why you think that the stock, if we're going to use that analogy, why mescaline stock has dropped precipitously when certainly it offers as much in different ways, perhaps slightly different ways. It offers as much as LSD. It certainly offers as much as ayahuasca. Uh, it has mm -hmm. a great deal to offer in terms of uh, mind expansion. It, mm -hmm. it possibly has a great deal of, to offer in terms of healing. Uh, it, it has you know, huge potential, and yet it's in the doldrums. Yes. I what, what happened, Mike? Tell us. Well, mescaline had a very, very brief golden age, which is very dominated really by Aldous Huxley and the doors of perception, you know, the first psychedelic trip that gave us the name psychedelic. And so mescaline is there in the origins. But very r rapidly after that, you know, by the late 1950s, once LSD was available, uh, then in um, science and brain research and psychiatry, um, uh, LSD started being used in preference to mescaline. And a lot of that, I think, is about dose. If you have a gram of mescaline, that's maybe three doses. If you have a gram of LSD, that's you know many thousand doses. <laughs> so not only is it much more economical to use LSD, but if you're a scientist trying to work out what this does in the brain, you're going to look at those two and you're going to think, well, LSD, this is the one that must hit some very precise, you know, neurochemical trigger. That's the one I'm going to research with. So by the time the 60s came along, mescaline had already disappeared from science for that reason. And then once the um, counterculture kicked off in the mid 60s, and you got your first underground chemists, it's the same thing. It's the dosage. You know, there's the same penalty for making a gram of mescaline or a gram of LSD. Which are you going to make? You know, the one that gives you three doses or the one that gives you thousands. So already, you know, by the time 1967 came along, there was not a lot of um, mescaline around, and um, LSD had become the, uh, the street psychedelic of choice. And I think the other things that weighed against it is, it's a long and um, can be, you know, it, it's kind of an ordeal, a masculine trip. It's, it's about 12 hours often. It's a lot longer than uh, um, certainly psilocybin mushrooms, and it's a bit longer than LSD. And it's got more of a kind of body load. It's a different type of chemical. It's a phenethylamine as opposed to a tryptamine. So it kind of hits you physically uh, in a way that includes euphoria and kind of wonderful senses of, um, you know, sacred presence, but that can also include, you know, nausea and, uh, you know, it can be difficult physically to manage. So I think that's one of the reasons why it hasn't come back in the current psychedelic renaissance is, um, you know, if you're, if you're doing therapy with medical professionals, you know, the clock is ticking, time is money. Um, you know, things like MDMA and psilocybin, which are run for less than half the length, are just much more manageable. So I think the reason why masculine has disappeared is nothing to do with the fact that it's ex the masculine experience is in any way inferior. I agree with you. I think it's absolutely fascinating. I think it's mostly kind of logistics and dose and price that have, uh, you know, sort of um, put it, uh, you know, to the back of the pack in this recent revival. Makes perfect sense what you're saying, because we know, for example, that the cartels uh, moved from marijuana 
to cocaine because of the size of the uh, of the product. Cocaine, you can make more money shipping less material. And what you're saying is that the same is true, that uh, since um, mescaline uh, you, you need a larger amount of than LSD, so you get down to the smallest common denominator to make the most uh, possible money, uh, right? That's right. But of course, the cachet of mescaline, you know, the magic of the name, you know, the promise of it never went away. Mescaline was always a name to conjure with. And, uh, you know, because of because of Huxley and doors of perception. And, you know, so for that reason, um, uh, underground chemists made small batches of it for connoisseurs. You had to be really well connected to get some mescaline. But a lot of what was on the streets and sold as mescaline by that point, by the late 60s and the 70s, was something else. You know, it was, uh, um, you know, it was whatever. It was LSD or it was some other kind of chemical analog. Quite often you get, uh, I mean, you need quite a lot of mescaline. As I say, you need a third of a gram. You know, uh, it was quite common for people to sell mescaline and little bits of blotter, you know, cardboard or little microdose pills or things that couldn't conceivably have carried, you know, an active dose of mescaline. I, I can remember one time a man, uh, this was in the late 1960s, uh, at a coffee shop called Enrico's in San Francisco, and, and he mm -hmm. had a... Uh, a little wooden container, beautifully made wooden container. And he took the top off it and it had a grid of 10 by 10. So it had a hundred little holes in it. And in each one of the hundred holes, there was a little vial. And in each vial, there was a hundred hits of LSD. So uh, he, you, could, right, and you yeah. couldn't do that with mescaline. You'd have a much larger container. So, yeah, and it's it's kind of impossible to make a small dose of LSD. That's the reason why you know all these uh, LSD manufacturers end up being sent down for twenty years because they made a million doses. Well, it's kind of hard not to make a million doses. Yes. you know, given that it's active at microgram range. Now, in terms of uh, difficulty to make in the laboratory, how does mescaline compare mm -hmm. to LSD? Do you know? Yeah. Uh, Yes, it's uh, it starts from a different base. It's a different principle. There are various different um, syntheses. Uh, it's um, it's it, it's I think a comparable process. I've looked at kind of lab notes of both processes. Um, there was a, I mean, the the first um, synthesis of mescaline was uh, was done in 1919. You know, by 1920, Merck Pharmaceuticals in Germany were selling it as a research chemical, the mescaline sulfate in powder. And um, then there were various other syntheses. And one of the reasons why it really got going around the Aldous Huxley time was a new synthesis, that made, a kind of seven-stage synthesis that made it easier. Um, so I guess they're both, you know, they're similar. You know, you're talking about, um, you know, you need a decent laboratory and um, you need 48 or 72 hours. And if you're trying to do it, illicitly or underground, you know, you need a good degree of privacy. So they, I would say they're comparable enterprises. Yes. You know, and you, you mentioned uh, the time uh, that uh, the experience takes, and that is an important consideration. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I'm a clinical psychologist, doctor of clinical psychology. It's my, you know, my primary profession. And so the, the issue mm -hmm. of how we're going to use these things uh, psychotherapeutically is is a major issue, and of course, as you know, say time is is of the essence, and a twelve hour experience is a very long experience, and especially if we're thinking of of being able at some point to be able to offer these to the general public as a psychotherapeutic tool. Mm -hmm. Twelve hours is a long time and a very expensive time. I think what you know what some of my colleagues are working on, Mike, is to come up with an LSD or an or a mescaline that's more like a three or four hour of somebody come up with a, you know, one of, uh, with a two hour uh, psychedelic would be fantastic. And that's one is one of the advantages, of course, of MDMA, because it's so much briefer and it, and it lends itself to an office visit. That's right. I mean, of course, once we find a way of sort of a kind of, you know, a, a sort of software based neurostimulation thing that you can switch on and off, then, uh, you know, you can, uh, and I guess the, uh, 
clinical um, uh, psychotherapy will migrate away from drugs or chemicals altogether. But I think the thing about mescaline being an ordeal is that an ordeal is not necessarily a bad thing. An ordeal can make makes an experience very powerful. Uh, in, the, in the Native American um, peyote meeting, you know, you really use all of those twelve hours because uh, you know this is a you know this is a, a long drawn out ceremonial event, and uh, you know it's meant to be a feat of endurance. It's not meant to be um, pleasurable. It's meant to um, keep you really fully engaged. And there's a full ritual program that runs, you know, all the way through from uh, um, dusk through till dawn. And if you look at the way that um, psychedelics are being used in therapy, for example, um, there's a, a lot of uh, um, military vets using ayahuasca in circles that are much more like something you'd expect um, uh uh, you know, I, I, I guess um, Alcoholics Anonymous or Narcotics Anonymous might be the model. You know, this is a bunch of people all sitting together and uh, um, healing themselves. And uh, you know, that kind of that kind of ceremony can be very powerful at, at length. You know, so I think it's possible that uh, mescaline or the cacti that contain mescaline um, could have a very valuable uh, therapeutic role going forward. But uh, um, but you know they're not natural fits with a kind of therapy that involves um, lying on a couch, being attended by a bunch of sort of white-gowned medical professionals. Yes. Take us to the end of your book. Uh, at the end of the book, you talk about a Native American ceremony, and you do so in really some exquisite detail, if I may say. Did, did were you actually there? Yeah, I was actually there. Uh, wow! And um, I mean, I I'm impressed. <laughs> well, I, um, I mean, that was one of the one, one of the great bits of research for me uh, was um, making um, contact with a um, Comanche group in Oklahoma who are just extraordinarily knowledgeable about their history. I mean, I was uh, what I really wanted to find out was uh, um, how the uh, Native American, um, the Plains Peyote ceremony had got going, and um, which happened in, I guess, the sort of 1880s. Uh, and I connected with this uh, group who have uh, got just extraordinary knowledge of that time. Uh, amazing, um, beautiful, uh, you know, glass negatives of their people of that generation, and it's just wonderful to look at them with them because. You know, you can tell that they're in direct communion with them. They know not only everybody's name, but the meaning of every eagle feather that everybody's wearing and what ceremony they wore it to and what it connects to and so on. So that was, for me, a fantastic immersion in that world. And uh, they very generously uh, invited me to uh, join them and uh, sit and pray with them in a, sort of in, a, in a peyote meeting. So... I wrote about it, but um, yeah, I, I, I didn't place myself in the scene because uh, I guess that's the that would be the journalistic way of writing it. You know, here I am in the teepee, sort of surrounded by a bunch of um, Native American people taking my peyote, and that felt to me a little disrespectful, like that. It felt that would felt if you write it like that, then you'd be putting yourself in the foreground, and this, you know, this scene in the background. So I kind of did it the other way around. I've, I've written about it, as you say. I hope very, um, you know, vividly enough to conjure it, but uh, um, without kind of uh, imposing myself into the scene. But that was uh, that was for me an amazing um, culmination to that part of the Native American story because it was just coming up to um, the formation of the Native American Church, which was uh, uh, which was 1918. So that was just on on the run up to uh, 2018, which was the centenary, and all kinds of amazing um, life objects were being brought out. For example, Quana Parker, who was the chief of the Comanches, had a uh, uh, what they call a grandfather peyote, a special dried peyote that he was sitting on his um, bedside table when he died, and that had not been seen since his death, and it was brought out and um, placed on the altar by the fire, and uh, so we all prayed around it all night, and uh, for, for me, that was just an amazing completion of the journey. You, you mentioned, as a little aside here, you mentioned that, uh, that Quana Parker was both the first and last 
chief of the Comanches. How did that come about? Was he, did he live for a very long time? And how did he get to be both the first and the last? And the last? Well, because um, in the, um, before the forced captivity on the reservation, there was no such thing as a chief of the Comanches. The Comanches were always, uh, they were kind of nomadic, very mobile, uh, sort of formed loose bands. They were a very different kind of society from, you know, the kind of the, the Kiva societies or the, the, the Pueblo societies, which are very hierarchical and structured. Um, they were lords of the plains of an enormous great range of territory, and they were in bands where pretty much anybody could say, okay, I want, I'm going to go and uh, do this or do that, go over the border to, Mes to, to Mexico and uh, or get, go and sort of do some um, horse raiding here and who's with me. You know, so they were, they, you know, they're very much... Um, you know, they weren't a, a centralized society with a central leader. It was only once they were in forced captivity and they had to negotiate as a tribe, as a people, um, you know, with the, um, with, with, with the white society around them, that somebody had to be appointed for those negotiations. And that was Kwana. So would you say the Comanches were the anarchists of the uh, of the Native American people? <laughs> oh, that's such an amazing diversity of yeah. Native American cultures. They're so different. Um, the Comanche's story is uh, it, it, fantastic. It's very much entwined with the horse, you know, which they became masters of. And, um, uh, you know, before, before they had the horse, you know, they were kind of a, a marginal tribe often being moved around. Um, and then it was really once the, um, I mean, it, it was the, uh, Apaches, as I understand it, who were the first people to um, steal horses from the Spanish, those mustangs of the plains, and uh, uh, you know from from the pueblos, and um, they became pretty um, pretty amazing at riding horses. But then when the Comanches came along, you know the Comanche and the horse were almost like a centaur. You know the uh, young Comanche children grew up in the saddle. They could do just extraordinary things. They could kind of uh, um, you know, if, uh, you know, hang on, on the one side of the horse, you know, sheltered by the horse and get 12 arrows out at somebody before they could reload one rifle. You know, they were just uh, unstoppable. So it was really, um, that was the period when they kind of rose to dominance. And um, yeah, so I guess, um, I don't know, that you, 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 might, you might call them anarchists, you might... Um, you, you might look to kind of those Central Asian nomad yes. cultures like the, uh, the, 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 the Huns or the Mongols for a, for a parallel. And um, certainly the, you know, the real masters of the horses in, um, uh, among the Comanches are now well connected with the uh, Mongolian horsemen and uh, uh, they have a lot of other things in common like hunting with eagles, for example. So, uh, yeah, uh, I, I found them really fascinating um, people and, um, you know, I've uh, learned a lot about them and hope to learn a lot more. So, so you're, in, you're in England. Yeah. You, you corresponded with these mm -hmm. Comanches uh, in Oklahoma. And then, then you, after the correspondence, yeah. which you did either by regular snail mail or computer, however you did it, you then went from England to Oklahoma to meet them and to participate. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. I sort of I realized that um, uh, this, the um, very few tr before sort of 1880, very few uh, uh, Native American tribes in the USA knew much about peyote because it grows. You know, just around the Rio Grande and a little over the border of Texas and in Mexico, and it was um, it was only when the Texas Railroad got going that uh, it started being shipped up to Oklahoma, and um, its use uh, by Native Americans really started in this reservation in the Washita Mountains in southwest Oklahoma, which was the reservation of the uh, Comanche and the Kiowa and the Apache. So I knew that that was where I needed to go and where I needed to look to get these origin stories. And I looked around this quite a lot online at sort of uh, University of Oklahoma. A lot of people have done oral histories and you could read lots of different people's stories about this and every tribe has their own story. Uh, 
but I can't, that was the bit I felt I really had to travel to. I mean, I'd been to Mexico before, you know, to the sort of other parts of the peyote country in the, in, in the Mexican desert. Um, but this felt to me, this was really important because this was the link between the indigenous story and the beginnings of the Western story. This is how the knowledge of peyote uh, came, you know, to the West and to Western science. And there was one um, ethnographer at the Smithsonian Institute called James Mooney, uh, who you may know, have heard of. He wrote a wonderful ethnography of the, the ghost dance. And he was really the figure who um, who brought peyote back to Washington and, uh, you know, the beginning of the first scientific trials and so on. So I read around about Mooney's um, journeys and where he'd been and where he got his peyote. So, yeah, I went to Oklahoma with... Um, you know, I guess a lot of things I wanted to research, and the Comanche story was 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 one of them, was the main one. But while I was there, I also um, spent time with um, people from other tribes. Uh, the president of the Native American Church of Oklahoma, who's a uh, a Cheyenne man, whose grandfather had been one of the original signatories of the Native American Church Charter. So uh, I learned a lot from him. That was uh, he was amazingly generous as well. So. Uh, uh, yeah, the, the, there were lots of reasons for going to Oklahoma, but that's, that little bit of southwest Oklahoma seemed to be to me where, 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 where this story really lives. You mention in your book that the charter of the Native American church is tenuous, that, that uh, you know, it, it could almost be done away with, with the flick of a pen. Would you tell us something about that, please? That's very important. Yeah, it is. It's... Um, uh, I mean, the origins of the Native American church, um, it really goes back to there was a House of Representatives hearing in 1918 where uh, the House um, you know, debated whether peyote should be banned and prohibited, and they only narrowly kind of voted it down. But by that time, it was very obvious there'd been lots of uh, local and <laughs> statewide bans on peyote in different reservations, and it was kind of obvious that... Uh, it was going to be closed down sooner or later. This was obviously prohibition time. And um, so they, um, uh, various Oklahoma tribes decided, um, with the assistance of uh, James Mooney, this uh, ethnographer and a lawyer and a couple of other people, um, to set the church up officially, give it what they called an umbrella of protection. And uh, once it was officially registered as a church and in its articles it said that, you know, peyote is our sacrament, then it was protected under the First Amendment. Uh, and you might have thought that was the end of the story, but of course it was only the beginning. Uh, it just became more and more anomalous as what we now call the war on drugs grew and developed, that Native Americans were allowed to uh, use this um uh, this cactus that was now, you know, became a class A drug for everybody else. And in the 1990s, there was an attempt to get rid of it uh, under Justice Antonin Scalia, Supreme, handed down a Supreme Court judgment saying, um, you know, we don't think, we, we, we don't believe that, uh, you know, this, you know, this, uh, you know, religious freedom on this level is, is kind of a luxury that shouldn't really be protected by the Constitution. Uh, so, uh, and, and then in, in response to that, you know, under the Clinton administration, there was uh, a special um, law passed to, uh, you know, reinstate and reaffirm the right of the American Native American Church. So it was really a legal struggle that went on for for decades. And um, who's to say it's over? Who's to say, uh, you know, some some new administration or regime won't try to roll those rights again. But you mentioned in your book that the number of people who are uh, associated with the, with the church, the NOC, is increasing. It's now in the hundreds of thousands of people. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. I mean, it's very hard to estimate, but, um, you know, 300, 400,000 people, maybe. It's, it's growing. Um, you know, it's, uh, I mean, there are a lot of, um, Obviously, a larger proportion of Native Americans in the U.S. Army than of uh, you know other than, than than there are of white Americans, and uh, so um, you know it's it, it, and Native American um, uh, uh, members of the U.S. Army are allowed to um, are, are allowed to use it. It's kind of it, you know it's it's very it's very well established. The Native American Church spread from Oklahoma very rapidly through the Southwest. 
next, and then up uh, into the northern plains and into Canada. So members of the, you know, the First Nations of Canada are also members of the Native American Church. So uh, yeah, and it's and, it, and it's it, you know it's very very powerful. I think for um, a lot of people growing up in that culture for spirituality and healing. Um, there's a very interesting uh, um, book by a. Um, researcher who spent some time out with the Diné, the Navajo, on their big reservation, working as a clinical um, psychotherapist and also attending Native American church meetings. It's a book called um, A Different Medicine by Joe Calabresi. And uh, his conclusion is that, um, you know, the uh, everything that the um, that the Native American church and the peyote ceremony offers, you know, is much, much more potent for many young people growing up in that culture than um, sort of clinical Western medicine. Uh, you know, so there's, a, you know, a, a, it was, it was, it's been very useful in um, as this kind of center of, uh, um, you know, pushback against alcoholism. Um, you know, the, 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 the Native American church um, the chapters and uh, cultures are, uh, you know, a, 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 you know, have a very, very positive and beneficial role within a lot of Native American communities. Um, it's a great success, and uh, so it's interesting that uh, you know, while the, um, you know, in, in, in the West we kind of um, banned these drugs and excluded them from medicine, uh, all that time, you know, within Indigenous culture. Um, the, the you know the use of them and their value was really building, and now we're very belatedly starting to realise that uh, this thing that we've spent uh, you know we've uh, in, you know imprisoned and persecuted two generations of Native Americans for is actually you know maybe the, the future of our um, of, of our mind medicine too. Before uh, LSD was made illegal, I believe in 1967, uh, there was quite a bit of research, particularly in England. Mm -hmm on the use of LSD with alcoholics, and uh, and it was published. And there was great hope that LSD was going to be an important uh, modality for uh, for curing uh, alcoholism. And, and you just mentioned now something that I'd like you to talk yeah. a little bit about, if you know more about it for us, which is the connection between the Native American tribes uh, using uh, peyote and the alcoholism that they've been dealing with, uh, horrend with horrendous uh, 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 results, in, you know, in in their tribes, as we all know. Yeah, I think this goes back to um, you know the the time of forced captivity on the reservations, when you had a whole generation of uh, young men, particularly who'd been brought up as warriors, you know, in a world that no longer existed, and that was really, I think, where the uh, um, the peyote meeting began. It was a way for um, those people to kind of inhabit a microcosm of the world that they'd lost and adjust themselves to it and, um, uh, you know, be able to con confess their feelings to each other. It was a very, very powerful therapeutic um, modality, I think, within the, within the tribes at that time. And it also does connect... Um, uh, and yeah, alcoholism just was one of the um, was one of the conditions it was always believed to be very strong against because in Native American culture, uh, um, peyote is um, is particularly powerful against white man's diseases and you know these infectious diseases that the white man brought. But also, alcoholism was conceived as a white man's disease, and the Native American church was seen as a kind of powerhouse of their um you know spirituality and the roots of their culture that enabled them to uh, to combat that and um but that in, but in terms of our um you know the ideas of psychedelic therapy that developed in the west in the uh, 50s and 60s um you know one of the very early um uh, pioneers of this before leary was uh, Humphrey Osmond, who was a, a British doctor, but who uh, did this work in uh, Saskatchewan, up in up, up in Canada, studying um, uh, mescaline and how it worked. And he attended a Native American church ceremony at that time and found it extraordinarily powerful. And said, "I wonder if we 
can do something like this, can use a drug like this in this way to uh, treat alcoholism in the same way that um, uh, you know the Native American cultures do. And that was really the beginning of our Western idea of um, psychedelics was, uh, well, LSD, for reasons mentioned, was preferred to mescaline. Um, but there were a lot of early programs using it to treat alcoholism. That was one of the first things that Timothy Leary did with it, you know, um, back in the early 60s. And um, this is starting to emerge again in the psychedelic uh, renaissance. One of the people who are putting mescaline through sort of FDA clinical trials is um, trialing it and presenting it as a treatment for alcoholism and trying to draw on this you know, long um, Western and indigenous uh, tradition of, uh, of, of, of using it in, in that particular modality. So, uh, so yeah, that's a, it. And I think the fact that that has such deep roots in Native American culture, as well as being lying right at the very beginning of our, um, you know, Western engagement with uh, psychedelics as, as therapies. I think that I, I think that makes it a very, um, you know, that, that that gives it a very powerful um, lineage and a strong resonance. In, in our Western culture, there are many people who somewhat look askance at LSD because it's made in the laboratory. And they and they favor psilocybin for for their uh, mm -hmm. for their psychedelic because you know it sort of goes with organic food and 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 so on right and so psilocybin is grown in the ground and LSD mm -hmm. is this you know thing made in the now, is there is there a similar kind of attitude towards mescaline and peyote? Yeah, I think so. Um, I think they've had very different histories for this reason. Uh, Mescaline was, I mean, mescaline became, as I said, in 1919, 1920, became what was known as like a, a pure white drug, you know, a sort of nice, clean, modern pharmaceutical drug, mescaline sulfate or mescaline hydrochloride. And you knew the dose precisely. And, you know, lots of people used it all through the 20s and 30s and 40s in all sorts of different scientific capacities. And uh, once a drug kind of, um, you know, has this, becomes a pure white powder, then people tend to forget where it came from. The same thing happened with cocaine. You know, once you had cocaine as a pure right. white powder, nobody bothers to chew coca leaf anymore, right? And you kind of, and, and, and you also forget it's indigenous culture. We could have learned an awful lot from the Andean people about the difference between, um, you know, using um, cocaine well and using it badly. And I don't think we learned. I, I, I don't think we learned a lot of that because once it once it's a drug, we kind of forget where it's come from. And I think the same happened to mescaline. There's a whole you know scientific literature and kind of uh, visionary literature around uh, around mescaline in the 20th century, in which you know the fact that it comes from a cactus is really just a footnote. And then at the same time, there's uh, you know particularly obviously in indigenous traditions, it's not about the you know, peyote is not a sacred plant because it happens to contain this compound called mescaline. You know, peyote is a is a is a is a personality in its own right, and uh, you know it's the whole idea of um, using it for healing. You know, you're working in a very very different context. So I think that is true of mescaline and peyote that they've been. Um, you know, they both evolved in parallel, but with often with very, very little recognition that you're talking about um, the same active principle. Are, are you aware of a book on cocaine that is uh, comprehensive as your book on mescaline? Um, it's a huge subject. Uh, there are various um, uh, kind of survey books but i think it's a it's a little hard to do justice to the whole story the one that i would really recommend is a book called andean cocaine by paul gutenberg paul gutenberg is an academic who's written a lot about cocaine uh, but i think the reason that andean cocaine is good is he kind of ignores the um uh he doesn't center it on the Western story. You know, he centers it on the story of coca in the Andes and looks at the uh, arrival of cocaine and sort of modern Western cocaine culture from that perspective. He edited a very good volume of um, papers about cocaine as well. Andean cocaine. And the other book, the other book you read, you, you referenced was Calabresi. That's called A Different Medicine. 
Uh, it's subtitled Post-Colonial Healing in the Native American Church. So that's his, uh, his idea of why it works so well for Native American people is that it's, um, it's a healing modality which uh, speaks directly to, that, uh, um, to, to, to the tradition of a people who've been colonized, and that gives it all kinds of ways of... Uh, it roots it very deeply in the culture, which gives it all kinds of um, healing potential that uh, Western psychiatric medicine doesn't mm-hmm, have. Mm-hmm. So... If you could wave your magic wand and direct it so that people who read your book definitely came away with the following three to five concepts or three to five pictures or or three to five visualizations, what would you most like your readers to take away from your book? Well, I think... um... The idea that these things that we think of as psychedelics, which are endlessly fascinating and very powerful, um, that our idea of psychedelic is not the only way of approaching these plants or these substances, that there are a lot of other times and other places um, where these plants and chemicals have been used in very different ways. And um, and also... um, so, so that, that, that's you know that would be my think of my idea taking a little bit more of a panoramic um, view of uh, you know what 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 something that's now very intensely interesting uh, to our culture but has I think a lot of has had many many interesting lives beyond that um, so I guess that would I, I, I guess that would be it I think um, also. Um, for me, it's been extremely rewarding to pay closer attention to indigenous cultures and um, the indigenous use of um, plant medicines, and I think that's kind of fascinating and rewarding. And um, yeah, uh, beyond that, um, I, yeah, I, I think we're kind of in a in a moment historically where. Um, Psychedelics are very powerfully impregnated with meaning, and that meaning is kind of either spiritual and mystical, or it's kind of medical and it's to do with healing. And um, I think um, you know those are only two ways that we can approach um, these substances, and two ways that we can use them. So uh, yeah, I guess my I guess my overriding um, message would be you know to look a little bit more broadly around the world, to look outside our own culture, to look outside our own time and to, uh, you know, give these um, uh, something like mescaline, you know, to approach it through a kind of generous frame. Here in this country, in the United States, we've used the, um, the avenue of medicine as a way to get a foot in the door towards uh, acceptance. So mm-hmm. we started with medical marijuana rather than recreational marijuana, because, of course, having too much fun yeah. with something in our country is dangerous. So uh, but if you're using it for a medicine, that's more acceptable. And you've made comments, and I'd like you to elaborate on those comments now on the difference between decriminalization and legalization. So elaborate on that for us, because I know you've commented on that, and you you see the dangers of decrim, and 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 I think you're. I don't want to misquote you, but I think you you believe that legalization think, um, is the way to go. Yeah, these are these are difficult words, and they're used very loosely. And um, legalization, I see really as a process, because these drugs are criminalized. You know, changing that in any way involves a process of legalizing them, of putting them under legal regulation. But legalization is a process and not an endpoint. The endpoint of that process might be a kind of libertarian free-for-all, or it might be a kind of highly state-regulated um, you know, outcome. So uh, legalization, to me, doesn't really describe a policy. Decriminalization describes a... Um, a particular policy, a particular policy, which is, um, you know, the suspension of uh, criminal sanctions against something. So when you have a decriminalized um, 
market. People can't be arrested for um, having a, a, a drug or a substance or a plant. Um, but you haven't. But then you've still got. It's, it, but then you've still got a criminal trade. You know, if you decriminalise, you only decriminalise for users. So where are the users getting these drugs from? From the same old kind of criminal market that we're trying to break down. And that's why I think you need a full process of legalisation um, to uh, you know to create a regulated market and to um, take the criminality and the violence out of the trade. The country of Colombia was, if not taken over, close to taken over by the mm-hmm. narcotraficantes. You're aware of that. You're aware of that, and and that was, you know, in, in part having to do with Pablo Escobar. But after his death, it, it, it continued. There seems to be quite a bit of evidence that the same is true in Mexico that the narco-traficantes are right in line and, and may well control the entire government. I don't know if you have thoughts on those two matters, but you're, you're welcome mm-hmm. to comment if you, if you like. The question, the question that I'm leading to is, if, the, if, if these cartels, which now with the Internet and, and, and their ability to hire uh, anyone from around the world. I mean, it's it's sort of well known that this man El Chapo in Mexico hired the world's foremost tunnel maker, an architect from Switzerland, to come over and be his tunnel maker for his, uh, you know, the great tunnels between Mexico and the United States. I'm mentioning that just to give people an idea of the scope that the cartels now have. Uh, and and I'll, I'll give you another little story. Recently, El Chapo's son was mm-hmm. in some, you read about that? He was in some hacienda, and the hacienda was completely encircled by government uh, army or, 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 or authorities. And he made a few phone calls, and then his men encircled the circle of the authorities. Yeah. So he had them completely captured, mm-hmm. and he walked away. Well, that that gives the public, it should give the public an idea of the power of these groups. And furthermore, these groups are now associating themselves with other cartels around the world. And so it's just going to be a matter of time before the cartels get smart enough to stop shooting each other and fighting with each other and do what the 13 states in the United States, 13 colonies did, which is to form one country rather than be competitive with each other because e pluribus unum. And so do you have any thoughts on that and on the power of of the international cartels? Mm -hmm. Uh, You remember in the beginning I said we're going to talk about your book, but maybe some other things because I know know your active mind and I want to be able to hear from you. Yeah, very much. I mean, I think the tragedy of both... Mexico and Colombia, two countries that I love, um, is that uh, the value of the um, the drugs they have to the West is so enormous that whoever controls the drug trade, they kind of have a you know, they have more jets than the, 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 the you know the the, 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 the the state army. You know, they become um, a bigger and richer force than the state itself. And so, you know, in the Colombian yes. Civil War, you had, you know, obviously the FARC guerrillas who were growing um, uh, the, the um, coca and, uh, you know, making their money out of the cocaine. And then you had a, a, a right-wing government that was rhetorically kind of saying, we're trying to stamp out these, uh, you know, terrorists and revolutionaries and their cocaine. But, of course, they were really both, you know, competing for the cocaine trade. This wasn't um, one responsible state actor trying to stamp out drugs. This was two different gangs, you know, trying to control the drug trade, which is the most valuable trade in the country. One of of these gangs was the government and the other was the cartels. And that's kind of, um, I think, where we are in in Mexico as well. You know, it's uh, certainly kind of um, under Peña Nieto. You know, you you saw that, uh, you know, 
really when you got up to the top level, then the narcos and the police and the army and the government were basically all the same people. And I think that's, um, you know, that's what happens when, um, you know, these drugs are illegal and profitable and, you know, the most profitable business in the country is they end up um, taking it over. And I guess that's what, a, what, what a, you know, and there is no kind of, um, you know, sort of, you know, there is no state with clean hands that's fighting that. The state becomes part of that. And, um, you know, it's, and, and I think that's, you know, that's one of the most powerful arguments against um, criminalizing and prohibiting drugs is that, uh, you know, of course, um, you know, the beer industry and the tequila industry in Mexico, you know, are, are going to be corrupt at some level. But the bottom line is, um, you know, people aren't getting shot for supplying bottles of tequila or six packs of beer um, because, uh, you know, and, and, and if anybody um, uh, commits crimes against anybody else in those trades, then those uh, crimes can be taken to the police and enforced. You know, once you've got an illegal trade, everybody has to have guns, everybody has to be armed because there is no legal recourse if somebody else comes and steals all your product or all your cash. So um, yeah, this uh, you know, and, and, and the, the, with, you know, both in Colombia and in Mexico, I think the movements for kind of uh, legal regulation of the drug trade are, uh, are, are growing very fast for precisely this reason that it's actually a question of uh, you know, if you want to maintain the integrity of your state, um, it's the only option. Does your journalist nose sniff out any other countries around the world? That are liable to be taken over by narcos. Yeah, I mean, there's, uh, the, um, uh, you know, I mean, there's certainly in West Africa, countries like Guinea-Bissau are the ones that everybody points to. Um, it's pretty easy to get um, cocaine out of uh, South America through Brazil over to West Africa across the Atlantic, to the point where a lot of those kind of poor countries in West Africa. Um, you know, which become uh, uh, sort of um, transit countries in the drugs trade, you know, taking their 10% as it goes through, that becomes the biggest business in the country. So, yeah, you're seeing a lot of, um, uh, yeah, and other transit countries in Central America and South America, Guyana and so on. Um, you can start to see kind of state capture um, by the international cartels. Um, but there's, it's it's very hard. You know, and of course, um, Afghanistan that we're all looking at now, um, you know, because, you know, the, the, the tragedy of um, decades of war in Afghanistan, you know, the most beautiful, fertile, potentially sort of productive country, uh, reduced to the point where opium was the, really the only viable cash crop. So there are all kinds of um, parts of the world, um, you know, through the 20th century and, and, and now where you can see exactly the same dynamic in play that for one reason or another, the country just um, becomes uh, entirely dependent on the people who control its illegal drug trade. So, uh, you know, then the country gets swallowed up by the criminal cartel. So what's, what would happen if, if a cartel moved to, to England or, or have they? And what would happen in England if, if authorities started facing people who said to them, uh, how much do you make a year? Uh, oh, 80,000 pounds? Well, uh, suppose I give you three million mm -hmm. pounds right now to take care of this little thing. And then another one, you know, how much do you make? And you're up to there. Oh, I, and you're head of this whole area of England. Mm -hmm. What do you say we just dropped 15 million uh, pounds in a bag in front of your house? Uh, do you think that would help you change your mind on this particular uh, Is that coming? Yeah, I think we've, we've always had it um, to an extent. And I think particularly with... Um, Drugs and kind of what, you know, the policing of vice has always kind of been um, subject to corruption of this kind. Because if you're, you're trying to enforce a law, you know, a crime that is victimless in, in the sense that the person who is buying wants to buy from the person who is selling. So how are you going to get in there and interrupt that consensual transaction? You're going to do it by being going undercover, being an agent provocateur, setting things up, and then, you know, sooner or later, you get into the system where you're in a situation where it's tempting to 
um, you know, be protecting one cartel and they're going to give you the names of the other cartel to arrest so you can keep your arrest rates. You know, this dynamic is always in play in this in, in this kind of world. And it's interesting what you said about the, um, you know, the single big cartel in Colombia. If you look at somewhere like Holland, which is our, our near neighbour, where um, an awful lot of the... Uh, which is a big hub for the European drugs trade. Um, you don't really get kind of big cartels in um, uh, in Holland because um, the Dutch police are reasonably efficient and reasonably uncorrupted. So, if you have a big cartel, the risk of that is that you you know the police arrest somebody who knows everybody and they spill the beans on everybody. So it's always worked better in Holland for criminals not to know each other. You know, for loads of people, you know, not to have turf wars for everybody to be operating their own little operations, kind of, and not knowing about everybody else's. So I think, in a way, whether you get one single cartel or whether you get a bunch of independent operators is a function or a reflection of um, the way that the policing works. So I'm going to completely change topics mm -hmm. now and go to something. We're going to, and this will be towards the end. We're going to, you know, finish up. I'm, I, I feel like I'm taking too much of your time, but uh, it's a, pl uh, it's a pleasure to talk. Well, thank you. So I want to ask you about the, your view uh, from across the moat about the United States. Mm -hmm. what, what, where do you see us going? You, you know what's going on politically between the Trumpsters on the one hand mm -hmm. and uh, whoever the other side is. And, and you know that we may be facing a constitutional crisis. Mm -hmm. uh, we may be facing, we, we had an attempt at a coup. Mm -hmm. you, of course, you're all aware of that. So f two questions. The first question is, does England view what happened on January 6th as an attempt at a coup? Does the world look at us and say, there, there was an attempt at a coup d'etat in the United States. Does the world see us that way? That's number one. And the second question is, where do you see us heading? Yeah, I think, um, sure, we all um, looked at that. You know, we'd always... In 2016, when you had Trump elected, we had our Brexit vote, and they were kind of similar. They'd been pushed in the same way by the same populist politics. They were fed by the same nationalism. They were both pushed by campaigns that broke all kinds of norms in terms of um, lying and, uh, you know, deceit. And uh, also you could see in both cases that uh, once the people who wanted to get in power were in, then they were going to fill their boots. This is really about, you know, people wanting to be able to, um, you know, use the state as an ATM and, uh, you know, dismantle all the um, uh, checks and balances that might be in place to stop that. So I think we saw... Um, you know, sort of Trump term rather in the same way that we saw our own Brexit. That's, um, uh, and I think um, in terms of where we're going, yeah, I think it's really concerning the level of polarisation, you know, to the extent that people aren't really talking from the same set of facts. You know, there's a whole... Um, whole bunch of alternative facts, you know, that you get if, if you watch Fox News, which kind of it's really hard to see anybody how anybody you know can have uh, you know substantive conversations across that d divide. And uh, yeah, of course, now we see the sort of jockeying by um, you know state and local Republicans to get control of the voting process, and uh, yeah, that all looks very worrying. But I think you know, in terms of um, Drug policy, particularly the other side of the coin that we see is, you know, wow, you know, your state laws, you know, your referendums, the fact that a state can legalize marijuana and then another one can and another one can. I mean, we we have nothing like that, you know, because we have a, a, a central government that has decided, you know, politically it's in its interests to, uh, you know, ignore the drug debate and, uh, you know, uh, not to try and produce an evidence-based policy. Um and, uh, you know, but the fact that you've been able to, um, you have this kind of bottom-up grassroots democracy that can get things like that going, and now we can start to look and see that more and more states are uh, 
legalizing marijuana and we can see that when they do it, the sky doesn't fall in, you know, the rate of young people taking it doesn't increase and uh, so on. So I think, um, uh, you know, on the on, on the state level, on the local level, you know, we see America as having a really, um, you know, enviable um, dynamism and, uh, you know, possibility of change that, uh, yeah, we look across and wish that we had some of that. Well, I think on that optimistic <laughs> note, Mike, this has been a, a terrific experience for me talking with you. And I, I hope you'll be willing to come back sometime. I certainly will. It'd be a real pleasure, Richard. It was, uh, it was great to meet you. And uh, I hope we'll do this again sometime. Oh, I would very much like to. We'll stay in touch. I'll get your email from, uh, from David and we'll be in contact. Please I don't do. know if you're planning a trip to the United States, but if you ever get to uh, California, you've got a welcome place in my home. That's very kind. and I'm, I'm hoping to do that um, maybe around this time next year. Well, fantastic. It would be wonderful to get together in person. Great. Take, take care. You too, Richard. Bye.